This episode of Crossing the 180 is brought to you by Sony's C Media Cloud. C supports the entire media lifecycle to streamline workflows for your video production teams so that you can go from camera to cloud to Final Cut faster. Learn more about C and book your free demo at sonymcs.com. That's Sony, M as in Mary, C as in Charlie, S as in Sam.com. Good morning, Vietnam! Wake up! Wake up, wake up, wake up! You talking to me? What we've got here is failure to communicate. Hi, to all you girls, boys, and non-binaries out there. This is your boy, Ron Dawson, coming at you with another edition of your favorite filmmaking podcast that breaks all the rules, Crossing the 180, part of the Art of the Frame podcast series by Film Tools and Pro Video Coalition. Every other week, I have engaging and informative conversations about culture and craft with artists and entrepreneurs and filmmakers doing amazing work in the world of film and television. And every now and then, I feel like I hit the jackpot with particular guests. And this is one of those days because today we have on the show the vice president of franchise production at Lucasfilm, Jackie Lopez. And uh, Jackie was one of the producers that oversaw the Star Wars Visions um, anime series that uh, Lucasfilm did in conjunction with a number of uh, anime studios out of Japan. And I usually make it a habit to read through, read through, yeah, read through credits. I like to watch the credits out of respect for the filmmakers and the artists that put in a lot of hard work into making it. Whenever possible, I like to sit through and watch the credits. But also, it's a great resource for finding guests for the various podcasts that I host. And so seeing who was the producer, who was the director, who was the editor, that sort of thing. And I saw Jackie's name as one of the producers on this, and I decided I need to reach out and try to in contact with this person. Now, having worked with Lucasfilm and Disney in the past, when I was managing editor at the Framio blog, we did a series about Marvel, and it can be difficult sometimes working with a company that large that is very precious about PR and whatnot. But working with the PR team that Jackie is working with was a sheer delight and pleasure. They were great people, and uh, I felt honored and privileged that I was even able to get this interview. So, Jackie talks a little bit about her career, what it was like working on this project, uh, and I think you're going to find this a great, uh, a great interview, very insightful. And you know, Star Wars is one of those topics that is like can be touch and go because you know I'm a I'm a huge fan, and you know, there's some saying that you know sometimes the biggest critics of Star Wars are the fans or something like that. And uh, when I saw the trailer for the anime series, I was like. This is just, it's like one of those shots in the arm that I think a series and a brand like Star Wars needed because, you know, having something so different, having something so unique brought to this universe, it was such a a breath of fresh air for a fan like myself. So it was so cool to be able to talk to Jackie about this. But as I want to say, enough of my babbling, let's get to my interview with uh, Jackie Lopez, the vice president of franchise production at Lucasfilm and one of the producers of Star Wars Visions. And uh, we'll see you on the other side. I 
I always shoot for the stars when I try to get these gifts, right? You know, I always go, like, you shoot for the stars, maybe you'll hit the moon. So when I saw the anime trailer for Star Wars Visions, I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'm all for this. Um, I love that. I love and, that response. And, and, I may have used an F-bomb. Maybe I didn't say hell, <laughs> if I'm being honest. Um, and so then, you know, I'm doing the research on it, and I watched the, you know, they have the little two-minute behind-the-scenes thing, and then I saw you. And I'm always, I normally read credits anyway, because I just like to see who does what, and I try to get a sense for who are above the line and below the line, even before I did podcasting, because what happens, I'll see a name, and then I'll see some other headline let's say in hollywood reporter or something but like oh i recognize that name from such and such credits so anyway all that to say i was watching it and then i saw you i saw you come up and it's like oh i'm see if i can get her for my show you know i i don't like wildly like communicate this but my show really i try to focus on filmmakers of color women filmmakers or filmmakers in the LGBTQ community. And I started that because like a number of years ago, I had this podcast called Radio Film School, which was sort of like an audio documentary series. And I had this really cool trailer and everything. And then someone had written to me saying that they really liked the trailer, but they say, Ron, there are no women in your trailer. (laughs) And it didn't even occur to me that I didn't have any women filmmakers. And so over the years, I... I like I made considered efforts to get as much representation from all kinds of filmmakers. And when I restarted this podcast again, I decided I'm going to focus strictly on, you know, these filmmakers in these certain demographics and, you know, no offense to, you know, cishet white filmmakers, but there are a lot of filmmakers that cover them. And I have yes. podcasts that do. So, uh, I was but really we appreciate that, Ron. That's really excellent yeah, because yeah. I think you're right that we are sometimes not the ones who get the spotlight. Right. Yeah. So it's really, really awesome what you're doing. And what's so funny is I found on this season, it's actually been hard for me to get male filmmakers. Like <laughs> almost all of my guests this season have been women. It's our turn. It's our turn in the sun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, what is your first movie memory? Uh, uh, a memory that you have that was your first profound movie-going experience or movie-watching experience that you remember? That is such a funny question because I think that mine always has to be, and I think I was just really influenced by what my parents were watching because mm-hmm. they used to take us to a drive-in movie oh, drive-in. every weekend and right. we would put our pajamas on my sister and I yeah. and you know get in the back seat and listen to that horribly tinny box yes. sound <laughs> and um they took us to see the godfather and how old were you i was too young to be seeing the godfather <laughs> i, was I gonna still say. talk to my parents about what were you thinking? Because So unfortunately, I think my first movie memory was very traumatic, you know, seeing that horse's head I know. in the bed and the, the scene where Sonny Corleone gets murdered outside yes. of the toll. Yeah. I mean, I, to this day, I can barely watch. Spoiler alert for Godfather. 
<laughs> I, have a, I have a feeling most people who listen to this podcast have probably seen that once or twice. So not Let's too early. But yes. Yeah. So, so you're a young, impressionable child and your, your parent, was it just your mom or was it both your parents? It was both my parents. You know, I was, and maybe they didn't know, or, you know, I just think <laughs> we didn't have the guardrails in those days that we do now on right. our children. You know, I think, and I think about that a lot because I think seeing that movie and then later seeing um, Deer Hunter, Apocalypse Now. And like all at the same movies, age. Yeah. Right? And Gee, those whiz. movies were my childhood. <laughs> I mean, that was my introduction. And I, I'm happy about it now because I still to those, this day think those are the most brilliant films. And they've really left imprints in my memory mm-hmm. of that emotion that something that can can bring up in you you know yeah. the power of that medium have you ever played russian roulette <laughs> no. <laughs> that's the only scene i remember from deer hunter <laughs> you know it's so funny because people always remember the um yeah the russian roulette scene and my scene that i remember is when robert de niro's character comes back to the little hardware store mm-hmm. or grocery store where meryl streep works Right. And those glances that they have towards each other melts my heart. Well, and- any glance that Meryl Streep gives, yeah. I, I, I think there are few actors who can emote their face the way she does. Like, my favorite performance of hers, and isn't necessarily the best, but I'm sure it's a lot of people's favorite, is uh, Miranda Priestly from Devil Rose Prada because it's yeah. such a complex character. Like it could so easily be this cartoonish villain. And you know, no no shade on Sandra Bullock, but she did a movie a little bit later. I can't remember the name of it, but she played a very similar type character. Boss. Where she yeah. was like a bossy mean woman. And they even have a scene that almost looks exactly like the scene in Prada where Miranda's coming, everyone's freaking out. And obviously, Sandra Bullock is an excellent, excellent actor. So I don't want to, and I don't think, well, I don't think she listens to this podcast, but <laughs> you, never <laughs> you never know. But I, I don't, you know, I, I think most actors would not be hurt if I said that Meryl Streep was probably better than they were. Um, yeah. But there was this, there was this one scene in, in that movie in Prada where it was towards the end. And Andy's character, like, she, like, waves hello to Miranda. And Miranda just, like, gets in the car. First, she gives her, like, the scowl. Um, But when she gets in the car, when she knows that Andy's not seeing her, she has, like, this this most subtle smile look on her face. And then she turns to the driver and then immediately turns to, like, discuss. and, And she says, go. And it's so, it's just so Meryl Streep. And, you know. Well, anyway, people didn't tune in to hear me go on about Meryl Streep, but you mentioned oh, that yeah. and, and it kind of go off a whole tangent. another podcast. That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> Meryl Streep. But it's funny. So you talked about your parents taking you to see these two movies. I remember my mom taking me, and I've said this before on the show, my mom taking me and my brother to go see Amityville Horror when I was like oh nine God. or ten. That's worse. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I cannot leave her side for like two days. Um, after seeing that movie, and she took me, took us to a drive-in to see. Have you ever seen Mommy Dearest? No. I just remember like her covering my eyes or something. 
But I remember having to go look up, like I wanted to look up the famous no wire hanger scene. And Jackie, just look up, like Google the no wire hangers ever seen. And <laughs> it is horrific. Like I remember watching it as an adult one or two years ago because I wanted to find out like how bad was the scene. And, and <laughs> it feels so bad, huh? It is. As an adult, it was freaking me out. I cannot even imagine what it must have been like. Um, so that's isn't it awesome mm-hmm. that these films had. I mean, you know, there's there's a few books that will have that kind of impact on you, right? And you know, there's a few paintings, but wow, it's just the power of film, yes, to imprint. Yeah, you know, it's so amazing, and that's why, you know, my fact that I was exposed to these powerful, powerful films at such a young age, I knew like, right. This is some, a medium I want to work in. You so know, you, this you is knew it. That was, you didn't know it at that relatively young age. That's no, what you wanted to do. No, I didn't know it at that age. I came to it probably in high school is when mm-hmm. I said, you know, because from that moment on, I was just always had to watch movies, just yeah. watch whatever I could. And right, then I'm right. like, gosh, you know what it was? I think it was like Ben Bender's, Wings of Desire. Mm. That really is that one in black and white. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was in college. Yeah, but it's funny that I didn't come to the Star Wars until later. Interesting. Yeah, because it's just not something my parents um, were into. into? Yeah. yeah. So I, it was later. But I think I think Wings of Desire was that movie that was the imagery that they created mm-hmm. was like something that you I know you don't you can't see anywhere else you know yeah. it's like wow that imagery is so powerful you know the idea of the angels in the sky yeah so you at this high school it was something that you thought you were interested in doing did you go to school for filmmaking no i did not i was a modern dance economics major in college that is an um, odd combination. How it's, you really, it's, it's, it's very, when you think about it, though, it makes sense. It's one of those things that I love dancing, mm-hmm. but I need to get a job. It's <laughs> right. one of those majors. <laughs> Got it. So was it like a, a double major or was it yes. like a minor? Okay. It was a double major. And then I went for a master's in London afterwards mm-hmm. in dance. So what happened with the dance career? Well, it, it's something I loved and, and I realized, you know, I'm going to be poor my whole life and I'm going to have to waitress just to mm-hmm. support myself. Mm-hmm. And I did that for about five years and then thought, this is going to be really hard when I get to age 35. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's when I got a job. I started going to British Film Institute and I got a job as a production assistant on music videos. Mm-hmm. And from there on, it was like, I was so hooked. Like, this is, this is my calling. This is where I should have been a long time ago. So let me get this right. You left the <laughs> opportunity to be a dance because you realized you're going to have to be a waitress. And so you decided to be a filmmaker instead because that's where all the money is. Right? I know. <laughs> exactly. That was your thinking, Jackie? I was a production assistant making $50 a day. So I was like, where are the tips? Great. <laughs> uh, all right. So I have to ask favorite dance movie. Wow. Um, okay. 
I love Carlos Suara films. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen Blood and Sand. I have not. I've heard of that. I have one, but I love his films. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm a sucker for all that jazz. Oh, okay. Why? <laughs> what about it do you like so much? I think I just love Bob Fosse's choreography. Mm-hmm. So it's just that. I mean, yeah. I bet if I went back and looked at it now, he's probably a huge misogynist. <laughs> <laughs> but, right. you know, I just, for pure choreography, I just love his work. So is there a particular type of dance that you, that you like? I love, I love modern dance, but not, I'm sorry. Yeah, your, your dog looks like he wants to get I out. have a very, he's old. He's almost 18 years old. Oh, he's wow. Old senile. And so he barks to come out and he barks to come in. And he barks. <laughs> Sorry. I would describe for our listeners. She's now letting her little dog out. Um, so the kind, of, yeah, your favorite kind of dance. You, um, modern dance. Modern dance for sure. And but what uh, does that mean, really? What is modern dance like? How would you describe it to someone who doesn't know? I would say it's. I've been doing this for all my life, and it's still very <laughs> difficult because I think that ballet is very technical. Okay. And it's very sort of, this is what you do. This is the name of this position. Mm-hmm. This is your training. And modern dance is just more free form expression. And I think I was attracted to that. It can mm-hmm. be very theatrical or it could be very straight dance. Mm-hmm. And I tend to go towards the more straight dance. Mm-hmm. Like I love Bill T. Jones and Arnie Zane Dance Company is my all-time favorite. I don't know if you know them. No, I don't. And I love Twyla Tharp. Mm-hmm. I love just movement. And so I think Bob Fosse was really unique because mm-hmm. he wasn't jazz. He was modern, but he yeah. threw ballet and jazz into it. Right. It, it'll bring out an emotion just like film does, just right. like art does. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, it almost sounds like, so it's almost sounds like it's the difference between baking and cooking. Yes. Earlier, I had asked you like your earliest movie memory, and oftentimes, when I ask, well, oftentimes when I ask filmmakers like, "What was it that inspired them to get into film?" The answer I hear almost more than anything else is um, Star Wars Episode Four, like sitting in the theater and then seeing the Imperial Cruiser go over. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard them people say. When I saw that, like, I wanted to know, how do you do that? And just being in awe. And I wanted to ask you, you know, being in a Star Wars world, what is it about that? It's almost like that scene itself seems to really inspire all. Because I remember seeing it the first time, and it felt like that ship was just going forever. It was like, is it ever going to end? Which is funny, because later on, like, they got bigger and bigger ships, but nothing ever seemed to be as big as that first one and maybe because it was the first time seeing it i was curious what your thought is on that well i think it's that i think the novelty at the time of Mm -hmm. seeing something like that and just it it was that what is what am i looking at right it looks so real Mm -hmm. it looks so real and ominous right and it does seem to go on and on and yeah i still think that shot holds up beautifully just oh yeah detail and the it still is 
like one of the most amazing shots I've oh. in history. I think it's easily in the top 100 shots of cinematic history. You know, when you think about iconic shots, for sure. Yeah, and and when you think about the technology of the time to get that shot, and you know, compared to what they can do now, right? And the fact that that shot still holds that power and still holds up, right? It's pretty spectacular. Yeah, it was. Practical effects for one, and obviously, I mean, the lasers, I assumed, were were added. But still, it's, yeah, it's amazing. It's an amazing, um, amazing shot. And so, so here you are, you were a production assistant for, you said, for music videos? Is that what you said? That's how I started, yeah. And, and any musicians or stars that we would have heard of? Um... Michael Jackson, Prince? No, I was not on anything big. Nick Lowe, um, uh, probably the biggest uh, musician I got to work with was Paul McCartney. Um, but that was later. So, yeah. It's so funny the way you see it. <laughs> you know, probably the biggest one I only got to work with was Paul McCartney. <laughs> no, I mean, that was like a highlight of my life. I'm not, I don't want to discount yeah. that. But uh, in the early days, it was, you know, bands trying to break through. It yeah. wasn't. Thing. Yeah. 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 No, that's, it wasn't uh, Beyonce. <laughs> <laughs> right. But then I got to the cherry on top was Paul McCartney for yeah, sure. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so, what are, you do, what are you doing as a production assistant on those kind of shoots? Mainly, you are running and getting coffees and getting waters mm. and moving directors' chairs and, you know, right. just whatever, whatever they want you to do and as fast as you can do it. So do you um, helping distribute call sheets? You know, we used right. to do call sheets by fax in those days. <laughs> fax, wow. Takes me back. Yes. Do you uh do you remember what was it like your first big milestone to make it to the next level? What was the next level for you, so to speak? Well, I think the I think the big milestone for me, well, you work yourself up sure. from production assistant, production coordinator. And um, then I started producing commercials for cars and beer and soda mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Nikes. And yeah. um, that was super fun. It was like a really quick, rapid fire film school because, mm-hmm. you know, they all had very short schedules and and you had to figure out how to do things really quickly and hire everyone. And And then from there, I went... I was doing commercials at Industrial Lighting Magic. Oh, okay. And now, by this time, are you still in England or did you move? No, I moved, moved back. Moved back. Got I it. moved back. And so I worked my way up through commercials at ILM. Mm-hmm. And the great thing about that was being able to work with not only the legends that were made the original Star Wars, mm-hmm. but just really, just incredibly bright and wonderful craftsmen mm. and, you know, just craftspeople. Just, right. it wasn't, there was no ego involved. Mm-hmm. It was all about trying to make beautiful images. Yeah. Um, and so I feel very fortunate that that was my entree into the film industry with yeah. those kind of people. And what was it? Did you just apply for a job to do some kind of work for there? <laughs> Yeah, I did. I did. I when I moved back from England, I wasn't ready to go back to LA. So I I thought I want to live in San Francisco. I'm going to mm. apply. 
at ILM and I, I got really lucky. There was just a PA job in commercials. I interviewed, they were desperate to get someone in the door, wow. any warm blooded person. Mm-hmm. And that was me. <laughs> so <laughs> I felt very lucky. Yeah. Now at the time that you did that, did you have like a vision for yourself? No pun intended for where you wanted to go either in ILM specifically or in the industry generally? You know, I, I, I always thought I wanted to be an editorial. Really? Um, yeah. I just like the um, crafting of the story mm-hmm. in editorial that I thought that, and it's a little more of a controlled environment. Right. But then when I got in production, I realized that, well, this is really what I do. Mm. This is this is my personality. This suits me more. I love coordinating people and getting the right type of people together to create something special, right? Um, which is production. And then my mm-hmm. economics background came in handy. See? It did. It did. <laughs> I can do, came I can write a circle. mean spreadsheet, Rod. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it came full circle. Yes. And, and then, so like, what was your first big producer gig? First in commercials and then maybe in more in features or narrative. Yeah, or you know, I was producing commercials for a while. I can't remember what the first one was. Mm-hmm. You know, it was at ILM, so they were pretty um, big, high budget commercials. You yeah. know, for beer and and yeah, you know people who spent a lot of money on commercials, which is fantastic because I mm-hmm. got to work with a lot of wonderful DPs and um, production designers. And stunt people and visual effects. So it was really, like I said, a great education. And then at ILM, they gave me an opportunity to move over to the feature side and Mm. produce visual effects. Oh, nice. And the first film I was on was John Carpenter's Village of the Damned. Oh, really? Which... um, it shot up here in Point Reyes, mm-hmm. and um, that was just a lot of fun because John Carpenter is a character. And mm-hmm. did he direct you know, it? He directed it. He did direct it. Okay. Yeah, and he was just fun to work with, and he's he's used to doing sort of low budget, mm-hmm. you know, shoot from the hip type of right stuff. And so it was like a novel way to work. Mm-hmm. I, I just really enjoyed that experience. And then from the the second film I was put on was a movie called Men in Black. Yeah. And that was... I like how you say it. A movie called Men in Black. Yeah. Well, I love was... how you put all these... How you put in perspective all these... You know, the best musician I got to work with was Paul McCartney. And then I got to work on this movie called Men in Black. <laughs> you're very, you're very humble, Jackie. It's so nice. Men in Black, no one knew what it was. You know, right. you don't sometimes know. And um, sure. so they gave it to me. It was only my second. Mm-hmm. And they thought it was going to be 80 shots. And it turned out to be 350 visual effects shots wow. um, with animated characters and, and you know, a lot of different things. So that was like, it was great. It was a great experience. And um, I'm super proud of the work we did on that. Now, how does it go from 80 to 300 and something? How does that happen? Um, like, did somebody happened. make a mistake in there? <laughs> like, you said that, Ron. You said that, not me. <laughs> no. 
Like does someone um, calculate something incorrectly that ended up um, yeah, more than I tripling? It happens visual effects because okay. you know sometimes you get into it and something looks amazing. So we're like, wow, right. that really shouldn't be two shots. That should be five. You yeah. know, there's that part of it, and sure. then there are sometimes practical solutions don't work out or don't look as good as you hoped or the director hoped, and right. so. You know, we have to replace things that weren't expected. And then the other part is sometimes things get rewritten, you know, Mm -hmm. in production that were unexpected. So that's, I think I can say all three things probably happened on that. Um, So brass tacks as a producer of visual effects, like what specifically are you doing? Then let's say that may be different than the producer of the film is doing. Basically, we get involved early on with the script, and I'm usually partnered with a visual effects supervisor. Mm-hmm. And you basically read the script, and anything that you think, oh, we can't get an alien to do that part, so we're going to have to create a spaceship crashes. <laughs> right. So we kind of highlight everything and make a list mm-hmm. of okay, this is what we're going to need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, this is how we should do it. Right. This is how long it's going to take. And this is how much it's going to cost. So mm-hmm. it's just partnering, just like a producer does with a director to how to shoot something, what's going to be a set, what's going to be a location. Right. We do the same thing. And then we work very early on with production, with the director and producer and production designer to make sure well, if we're going to make this look good, we need we need you to build this part of the set and have the actor wear pajamas so we can track markers. Right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Right. All right, we're going to take a break from the podcast so that we can pay some bills. Tired of uploading content to multiple systems? Now you can work smarter, not harder, with Sony's C Media Cloud. Get blazing fast uploads, secure, reliable backup, seamless, simple sharing, and real-time collaboration in a single, easy-to-use cloud service. With C, the possibilities are virtually endless. C allows your team to securely and reliably share, organize, review, and collaborate on, and deliver professional media files all in a flash. You'll find C's powerful built-in collaboration tools and apps are designed specifically for media professionals to work more efficiently. And C's creative suite of apps and tools can empower broadcast and production teams to collaborate on videos in real time, all within a trusted workspace. Let Sony's C Media Cloud help transform how your content moves across the entire media cycle. From camera to post to final cut, faster. Learn more about C and book your free demo at SonyMCS.com. That's Sony, Amazon Mary, Season Charlie, S as in Sam.com. Now, back to the podcast. Well, I, I want to fast forward a little bit because I want to make sure we have time to I talk know, about it. I know. I'm yeah. like, oh, let's talk about visions. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> so um, I know at some point you get moved over to the animation side. And, you know, so so how was it that this particular project came to be? Like, did it, who's, I don't know, whose brainchild was it? Uh, let's combine anime and Star Wars. Like, how did that all happen? Well, it's something, you know, we're, in Lucasfilm Animation, which is I'm I'm a part of now, mm-hmm. um, we're all huge fans of anime. 
mm-hmm. you know, starting with Dave Filoni, who mm-hmm. always had that influence and had that passion towards anime. So um, it's something that, and I think even when he was working with George on Clone Wars, um, you know, they they brought in influences even in design and um, storytelling from right. anime. So it's something that we always talked about. We always, I mean, there's some amazing fan art out there mm-hmm. that, you know, expressions of Star Wars in anime style. And it's just right. always something we've been like, oh man, we should really do this. Um, and then of course, Kathy Kennedy is a huge fan of animation. Wow, She's always a big advocate and she has a very close relationship with Ghibli studio mm-hmm. and has helped bring those movies, you know, over to the States and, you know, overseeing their dubbing. So she, she definitely has a strong connection. Mm-hmm. So when Disney plus was born, we had a platform that we could sort of, I don't want to t- say take risks, but yeah. you know, there was a, there was a bigger platform for us to try new things. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, we talked to Kathy about it and she was a hundred percent go. And, you know, this is, it just felt like a really natural pairing for us, you know, yeah. Star Wars and anime, just because of the early influence of Japanese cinema on George. Mm-hmm. So it didn't feel like a big stretch, like, oh, let's put this chocolate in this peanut butter. It was right. a little more, you know, seemed compatible and natural to us. Yeah. No, yeah, it's funny. I don't know why, but I didn't ever even make the connection of like George's affinity for. Like, you know, Akira Kurosawa and Japanese filmmaking. So, yeah, it totally makes sense that that DNA would be built in. And then, so was it someone on the Lucasfilm side who was like, okay, let's reach out to some anime studios and see if they like the idea? Well, we had some um, connections over there um, with a few studios already. Mm -hmm. And Production IG was one of those. So, we Mm -hmm. thought, oh, for sure, we're going to go out to production IG. Um, We also had a relationship with Polygon Pictures Mm -hmm. because they worked on Clone Wars and Resistance with us. They're more of a 3D house and we wanted to keep this in the 2D anime sphere. So, Mm -hmm. you know, Shuzo from Polygon put me in touch with uh, Mikaze Doga, Mm -hmm. which Jutai, and they did the duel. And then sort of, I mean, there are so many talented studios right now in Tokyo. So we kind of just sort of got a list of them and mm-hmm. looked at their work and thought, okay, if we have production IG, we have Kamikaze Doga, let's get some other styles. And we kind of tried to curate mm-hmm. between up and comers, more established. You know, so we knew Studio Trigger had a very very definite style and mm-hmm. and people love their work and they do very uh, you know they're different they just do different it's funny you mentioned like i think all my favorite ones were the ones by trigger oh really yeah yeah for me personally and they're yeah. so different right yeah, i mean they yeah. did the they twins are. which is very different than right. the elder and then we wanted something sweet and whimsical so you know we kind of reached out to science saru but, you know, if, if for as much as these studios kind of have a studio style, mm-hmm. they all do very different things as yeah, well. Yeah, for sure. You know, so 
I, I say, you know, we went to Science Saru to do whimsy, and then they one of their shorts was Akakira, which is one of the, you know, one of the most intense, serious ones mm-hmm. in, the, in the group. So I have to say, they're just so talented. Mm. And, you know, so we we sort of curated, let's go out to these studios, see if right. they have, you know, the ability to do it in our schedule, because, you know, they're all, everyone is so busy right now. Right. And if they would like to be involved, could they pitch us a couple of ideas? Mm-hmm. And the brilliant thing is we found Star Wars lovers in every studio, mm-hmm. which is fantastic because I know that Star Wars made a big impact in Japan, but you just never know generationally where mm-hmm. it hit with people. Yep. Yeah. Um, but as soon as they started asking questions about what they could pitch like what could they what stories they could tell i mean we were really like we tried to let them tell their own story mm-hmm. right. and when the pitches came in they were all really heartfelt star wars stories mm-hmm. it was such a satisfying oh like they get it they get it and even though you know you can say some are more star wars than others they're still a message and hope and heart in all of the stories, I think. Yeah, no, for sure. And then are you overseeing each of the ones? Like how involved are you personally in the production of each of the shorts? You know, unfortunately, this was all happened by the time we sort of curated the collection and said, go, COVID hit. I mean, the shutdown happened within a week or two of that because our intention was to go out there in April of 2020 and have kickoff meetings and go through design and and we couldn't do that. So everything was on Skype or Skype. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Zoom (laughs) (laughs) with, um, with um, translators. Right. And we were involved. We had we asked them for touch points right. along the way. I feel like we were most involved in script and storyboards, mm-hmm. but only to the point where we wanted to make sure the stories were um, made sense. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just those touch points, and I feel like once they realized how much freedom we were giving them, they were mm-hmm. so appreciative and trusting. So it was, you know, they come back to us like, okay, if we're if our short is sort of set here, what ships would have been in existence? You know, it was mm-hmm. kind of those kind of things for them. Yeah. Or what kind of sound would this droid make? Or what kind of droid would do this? And and you know, like it was very light touches, I would say, um, yeah. because they were so good. These directors and character designers and animators were so good at what they're so good at what they do. Is there sort of like an ongoing meeting process that you have? Like you have like standing meetings with each team to make sure things are going along well? Yeah. Yes, we do. And with 2D animation, you kind of want to get all your input in by the time your storyboards are locked because Mm -hmm. it's such a laborious process, you know, and crafted these, these pieces that, you don't want to make changes down the way. It's not like even computer graphics animation is difficult, but this is really difficult. So, so we tried to, you know, collaborate 
and get any of our notes in between storyboarding and um, or script and storyboarding. And then we trust these people. They're like the best at what they do of in course. their animation, you know? Yeah. So yeah. yeah, the only thing would be, yeah, just making sure, you know, it wasn't gratuitously violent or anything like that. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's funny you mentioned that because I was thinking about, okay, how are they going to portray violence or whatnot? And I think it's on oh, the ninth Jedi one, you know, they have some scenes where I remember one scene in particular where a person gets sliced and just as he's like sliding into a cape kind of falls over. <laughs> and so I thought, oh, that's a very elegant way of being able to hide that. Um, but in some of them, they're sliced. You can see a little bit of blood. And so I felt like, okay, they're trying to push the edge a little bit, but uh, not too much. Yeah. And, you know, Star Wars, you know, if you look at the Clone Wars, there's, it's, it's wartime. Yeah. <laughs> it's a no, war, for sure. so there's going to be, you know, that, that kind of thing. No, absolutely. If you get a Sith and a Jedi together, they're not going to have a cup, cup of coffee. <laughs> no, they're not. You're not. And, you know, I mean, if you think back to, Empire Strikes Back, there's some shots and scenes in there that you could call disturbing. Yeah, Yeah, it's one of those things. Um, You know, we all, I don't know if you have kids, but it's always, oh, can I show my kid that? That's where he loses his hand or that's where, you know, and and then I think back about, oh my God, I saw the horse head. I know, I was just going to say. you can see that. Or maybe we'd have more empathy because of what we were put through and we would say, no, yeah, you know. maybe that's it. <laughs> now, when you're working on a project like this, does the Star Wars story group have to be involved at all? Or are you able to work completely separate from that? And maybe explain what that is, because I don't want people to assume. I, mean, I know what it is, but I'm not sure everyone else listening knows what that is. You know, I, I think the Star Wars story group is involved in everything. Yeah. They were there to help. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, send them a reference of this, this, and this. Or, right. oh, it shouldn't be that color because then it would be that, you know. And, right, but, right. But like I said, it was a light touch on this project because, you know, we we didn't want to put reins on them, as you can sure. see from the twins. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, they're like floating in space and without space. I know, and twin Star Destroyers. And right. wow, when the when the color came in for the first time, yeah. it was just like, wow, this is beautiful. Like, you know, you would never see that in Star Wars, that color palette. Right. And then, and then so, so this is a slight spoiler for the end of uh, Twins. Um, they do the holdo maneuver essentially at the end of that. Was it was that part of their pitch when they were like talking about the story? Did that come later? Like, oh, what if we did the holdo maneuver at the end? Like, how did that? Happen? It was part of their pitch, yeah, or part of their script, I should say. Yeah, you know, until you see it visually, yeah, that's one of those things where you're like, what is what is that going to look like? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. um. But I, I think it's, I mean, believe me, there was some nail biting during production, just like, oh my God, is this going to fly? <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so it, but I think that's what made it so fun. It was surprising yeah. all the way along. Even at the end when it released, I was like, oh my God, we're either going to get completely skewered on this project or people mm-hmm. are going to love it as much as we do. Now you're talking about that particular um, episode or the whole series? whole thing yeah 
Yeah, the whole thing. Because, you know, we have very, very dedicated and vocal fans. And mm-hmm. really? You know, I, I didn't know this. <laughs> what makes you say awesome. that, Jackie? We have the best fans. We do. <laughs> yeah, we do. I know. They're so loyal. And, yeah. And we wanted it to be not just for anime fans. We wanted it to work for Star Wars fans. And mm. so when it first released and, and we started seeing positive reaction from our fans, it was just like, oh, yay. That was so satisfying. Well, yeah, I know. I'm sure. I'm sure it must have been because of the reason you said, because fans are so passionate. Yes. Uh, anime fans are really passionate, too, as a matter of fact. Yes. Uh, I've seen some pretty nerdy debates online oh wow it's really amazing because just to tap into that and get a sense of what that is because i remember when we first announced we only announced the studios and i thought is that enough for an announce and Mm -hmm. oh my gosh just the online chatter because each of those studios has a very loyal fan base i would assume yeah passionate people like okay this is i bet they're gonna do this right but that was really really fun so i have a i have a story question um so and at least a couple of them you know again and i'll put a spoiler alert at the beginning for people um but by the time this comes out i'm sure people would have seen it multiple times um but like for a couple of them they talk about it's been like hundreds of years since the end of the Sith or the end of the Jedi or something like that. But because of how Star Wars is, and because if you think about the, I'm getting really geeky here, but if you think about the length of the Galactic Empire and how long it's been around, even though it's been hundreds of years, technically, it could be a future Star Wars or it could still be in the past and it could still be hundreds of years. So is there, are we supposed to know? Is it in it or is it however you interpret it? I think it was, it's however you interpret it. And mm-hmm. I think these are just different Star Wars expressions from these of course. Yeah. filmmakers. And, you know, a lot of them, you know, they were like, okay, can this happen here? It, it, anything can happen. It's a yeah. huge galaxy and yeah. we have a long timeline. So that could have happened over here. You know? yeah. So, yeah. um, I think the point is you're not supposed to know as yes. much. It just like let it be free, let it exist on its own. Yeah. And now is there is there any chance of us seeing any of these stories going off on their own and seeing like like a series of the twins or of you know the history of the elder, how he got to be where he was or anything like that? Or what could we see in the future as it relates uh-huh. to I love that you're even asking that question. Yeah. I would love to see more visions, of course. And yeah. I'm thrilled that people, I think people also would like to see more visions. So I don't know what's going to happen, yeah. but I I love the fact that people are asking for that. Yeah. Which one would you like to see? I'm curious. For me, the obvious ones are, okay, what happens with the twins after, because that's really left unsettled. Um, it would be interesting you know, the um, the Ninth Jedi, which I know is, is a favorite among a lot of the fans from what I've seen. You know, what happens, what led up to that, what happens, you know, after that. Um, and I was reading, again, I mentioned earlier how I like to read credits. It was interesting to see that Simu, I think that was one where Simu Liu played the voice of 
the the laser smith i think yeah the uh, father the father the, yeah 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 and so did that was he cast before he was cast for shang chi or after or like obviously he's part of the disney family now i was wondering are they related like now that he's part of the disney family we can bring him over to do some voiceover work for us like how did that work yeah we wanted to just try to cast the english dub with whatever could capture the spirit of the Japanese actor really. Yeah. Um, And so he's just someone who we adore. Yeah. He's he's the nicest guy as well. Yeah. yeah. And it was before he was about to blow up. Right. right. Um, And he was just so, he's just so generous. Um, You know, he's like, absolutely. That sounds amazing. That's so So, cool. That's so cool. (laughs) Yes. Um, So it's funny you mentioned English stuff. I was going to ask you, would you say the the natural, for lack of a better word, language of these films is Japanese? And then if you watch in English, you are watching a dubbed version. Is that how we should interpret it? Yes. Okay. Yes, absolutely. And some of the Japanese, the Japanese cast is amazing. Like yeah. if you look up their credits and, yes. you know, their credibility in the anime world is, is amazing. So right. we wanted to... Some people, a lot of anime fans are used to watching it in Japanese with mm-hmm. the subtitles, but we didn't want that to be a barrier to entry. Right. So we thought like, okay, if we're going to do it in English for some of the other fans who aren't used to that, let's mm-hmm. let's try to do it as, you know, let's try to keep the creative intent and do it as well as we can. So that was really a fun process for us as well. Yeah, yeah. So was it fun? You talked about, you know, the process of getting the dub actors. I saw Neil Patrick Harris was the voice for, and one of the, I think Hari. it was in the Twins wing, Harry and yeah. Twins. How do you go about determining, you talked a little bit about how you chose Simu, but for all the English actors, do you look for recognizable um, voices or do you try to stick to people who can just maybe deliver, give a certain we delivery? We wanted recognizable voices. We want, you know, we thought what Kathy did with the Miyazaki films was just mm-hmm. brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, just the caliber of actor, you know, just elevated it that much more. Right. And so we wanted to do the same. We wanted to give the same to this project. Mm-hmm. And we didn't have the timeline or anything like that. Right. But, you know, I think we did really well. We were, you know, we're happy with. I think the cast did an amazing job and most of the cast, you know, it was kind of a labor of love for them as well. A mm-hmm. lot of them love Star Wars and they love anime. So it was like, oh, cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think we were very lucky to get that cast. Was there an experience or two making this whole series that really stood out to you? Either something that happened, whether it was something that felt providential or something that kind of like, which is awesome that you that that happened? Any stories that kind of stand out to you in the production process? Wow, there are so many. I just remember when the produ- the art, character design and art started coming in mm-hmm. and just being so excited to go get the downloads and like right. just seeing the treatments and how different they all were. Like when watching the duel, it was like, oh my God, is someone doing charcoal paintings on this one. Yeah. And then Lop and Ocho came out and it just had that sort of classic, almost 70s anime look, mm-hmm. which I love. Mm-hmm. And 
it just seeing how things were coming to life were was just such an amazing experience for me personally. Um, also just the, the, they took great care with the music on all of them as mm. well. Mm -hmm. So we had Kevin Pankin on um, the village bride mm -hmm. and his music is just so haunting and mm -hmm. magical. And he, he got a vocalist who, who has made up her own language called chaos Hmm. language and she sings in that language during village bride and it just added this whole sort of ethereal beauty to that short um you know production ig the composers rented a big symphony hall in tokyo and recorded their music mm -hmm. and you know and i was crying that i wasn't there in tokyo to to be yeah. there on some of these things um but the but the time i think we were most collaborative was a lot of shorts wanted to mix that skywalker sound mm -hmm. and so we did it all you know interactively they were in tokyo in a sound mix skywalker was at skywalker ranch right and we were all on zoom and doing that interactively and seeing how excited they were yeah you know because I was not sure, you know, the, the sound mixes in anime are very different than mm -hmm. how we mix here. You know, their music is usually really hot and, um, you know, it's just different. So right. when they got the sky sound treatment and some of the original sounds of Star Wars, mm -hmm. I was nervous. Like, are they going to like this? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and they were all so excited and grateful and have the time of their lives in that mixed session. You know, sometimes we would schedule three hours and we would end up spending five because they were just having so much fun. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, bet. So I bet. That was a really nice culmination of the collaboration for us. Yeah. Yeah. Before I go to some of my last set of questions, I normally ask my guests, I want to finish up with some more of the visions at this stage, you know, they're out. You don't necessarily know, like, what could happen next. Um, for you personally, like, what are you working on next that you can talk about that you're excited about? Tell you one thing I'm really excited about mm -hmm. is the cool toys that are going to come out. <laughs> oh, tell me about that. I don't know if I'm allowed to say what they are or yeah, not. Then, then so, don't, then don't. But, but there are some cool toys. I can tell you there are some cool toys. Oh, and what are some of the cool toys that you're excited about? Um, just some of the, you know, when you watch an anime show, yeah. there is just, they have the coolest toys. Like, I oh, don't know yeah. if you've been to the toy stores in, in Japan, but it's, I mean, we, it's amazing. So we're going to have some really cool authentic toys oh, on the series too you know it was just awesome. such a short production timeline we yeah couldn't get them out right when the show released but they're gonna we're gonna get some next year and i cannot wait i'm gonna own five of everything oh yeah <laughs> when i was a kid i was i loved anime and i would get some of the giant anime toys that would turn robots that would turn into planes whatever oh, oh my yeah. gosh yeah they, they were definitely the best now when you when you're producing toys how involved are you in that process? Or is that something you're not involved with? We're, we are talking to our um, folks who create the toys right. and letting them know what characters we think would be great. They're just so fun to work with because they, mm -hmm. 
they just support us in such great ways, in fun ways, you know? Um, But do you personally get involved in helping in that process? Only in sort of talking to them about what the show is about, who Mm -hmm. the main characters are, who some some cool droids are or ships. You know, we sort of tell them what the main elements are of the show. And then we share the artwork with them. Yeah. To help them get started in sort of ideating and what the toys would be. So, I mean, that's some of the most fun meetings is talking to that group. Yeah. Well, um, some of the questions that I like to end with are called my speed round. I want to make sure I can get to them. You know, the first one is, what was the last thing that you saw that surprised you, either in a good or a bad way, and why? Oh, gosh, that's a really hard one. Well, it's it's probably going to be boring because this is probably what everyone else in the world is saying right now. But Mm -hmm. Ted Lasso. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, that's not boring. I love that show. Yeah, season it, one or season two? You know, season one mm-hmm. was my favorite. Yeah, and I think what surprised me so much is how kindness mm. is so powerful. And what surprised me is like, why aren't we seeing more of that? Why aren't mm-hmm. we seeing more films and things in our culture? about kindness yeah yeah you know um i just think that tv show is brilliant it's great writing and you know season two i know people are saying oh it's a little too syrupy but it's still great you know it's still did you see all of season two i i have yes what did you think of the episode that centered around coach beard i actually really liked it so did i yeah, it's funny because some people at first I was like, oh gosh, this whole episode's gonna be about him. Mm-hmm. What about Keely and Ray? Or right, 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 right. And um or Roy. And I was I really liked it. I so went I. on that journey with him. Totally. And I, I liked it. It I felt like there was a lot of complexity in that episode that I was not expecting. Yeah. And I laughed so hard. When he started doing his brave right. <laughs> dance, yeah, oh my yeah. gosh, I was just, I, I really liked it. I thought it brought a lot of complexity to that character, which, who, which you knew he had inside of him, but totally. Yeah. And it was, it was, it was dark. It went to a dark place. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I like the scene in that episode where he's interacting with the, what university are they from? The really snobby university. Or they were kind of... Um, were they Cambridge or Oxford? Yeah, Oxford. They were from Oxford. Yeah. And they were asking him all these questions, kind of testing him, because he yeah. said he was Oxford man, and how he was answering them. And I was like, okay, how are they going to explain how he knows all this? And his answer was just so great. <laughs> like, you know, he, he was dating someone who lived across the street from that particular church. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. And I think it's even more, not so much... I mean, kindness is a big part of it, but I think a lot of it is also empathy. Like Ted's character and other characters really shows empathy. Yeah. Um, I think that was something that really stands out. And I agree with you. Like, it would be nice to have more than that. Um, Next question real quick as we get close to the end is, uh, do you have a guilty pleasure TV or movie that you like to watch over and over? (laughs) Well... Guilty pleasure is just binging shows. Like if I get into a mm-hmm. Mare of East 
um, if I get right. into a, I may destroy you. Right. I, I just remember when you watch one of those, they just grab you. And then I yeah. can't. Stop. And then I'm like, okay, I'll take you to soccer practice and I'll sit in my car the whole time. And right. in the show. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're so good. My rainy day movie that I need like a pick me up is mm-hmm. House Delegato. Okay, <laughs> okay. Good for you. I like it. That's my okay. I want a barrel full of popcorn and right. a Coke, and I'm just going to sit here on my couch. <laughs> oh, nice. No, that's a good one. Good one. Uh, last question If you had to give a bit of advice to anyone who went and do what you do, what would you give? What would you say? What's your standard answer for that? I would say get in the door however you can, mm-hmm. be a production assistant, work your ass off. Be humble and learn and listen as much as you can. What if someone is making a lateral move and they wanted to get into it? Like, let's say someone is an experienced editor, but now they want to get into VFX or animation. Do they need to start as a production assistant? Is there a different strategy someone like that could take? That's interesting. It just depends on what part of the effects you want to get into, whether mm-hmm. you want to be an artist on the box mm-hmm. or you want to be in production. Right. Because if it's an artist on the box, I would say learn that software, learn Maya if you want to animate or right. learn, you know, Houdini if you want to uh, be an effects or sim person. Um, right. And then in production, it's the same. I think whether you're in project management at a software company or in marketing, I think being able to work with groups of people, anticipate problems, schedule, you Mm -hmm. know, just sort of be a problem solver. um, Those skills are transferable. Right. I mean, I truly believe that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I could talk, Forever, as you can probably tell. I know, but Ron. I, it's so cool. I love your curiosity. Yeah, but I wanted to let you go. And I thank you so much for taking the time. This was wonderful. Yes, thank you. A huge thanks to Jackie and her entire team for helping to set up this interview. Obviously, there will be links to the series and the show notes and the blog post for this episode at Providia Coalition. And if you haven't already seen it, go check out Star Wars Visions. It's such an amazing series. And I think you're going to love the worlds that they created and the different ways in which they approach this timeless story. Crossing the 180 is a production of Blade Runner Media and part of the Pro Video Coalition's Art of the Frame podcast series. This episode was produced, written, and hosted by yours truly, Ron Dawson. Mixing and editing by Maria Passingham. You can follow me on Twitter at Blade Ronner. That's Ronner with an O. And you can follow me on Instagram at Blurred Ronner. You can follow Pro Video Coalition on Twitter at Simply Pro Video. That's it for now. Until next time, remember, if the story sucks, I don't care what you shot it with or cut it on. And may the force be with you. Always. You know I had to add that in. See you in two weeks. worked with Disney in the past in terms of interviewing people who, uh, you know, I went, I worked at Frame AO and I was editor there. I had to Mango, quiet. Why all of a sudden are you? Ugh.